Welcome to the Ben Don't Break podcast. I am Aaron Schweitzer, your host, along with locally famous reporter Laurel Bronze. This podcast is powered by The Source Weekly, Ben's locally owned newspaper. This podcast is generously supported by Worthy Brewing, putting education first, utilizing green technologies, and experimenting daily to brew the best damn beer in the Pacific Northwest while treading as lightly on the earth as possible, living out their mantra, earth first, beer second. Our guest today is Holly Harris. She is the program manager for Deschutes County Health Services and oversees all crisis services, including the Deschutes County Stabilization Center. She moved to Bend from Texas and started working for Deschutes County seven and a half years ago. She's worked in the behavioral health field for over 17 years. Primary focus for most of her career has been on the intersection of the criminal justice system and behavioral health. While living in Texas, she was director of juvenile probation for Wharton County and has worked with children, adults, and families in both crisis and private practice settings. Trained in evidence-based practices, motivational interviewing, and risk assessments, Holly, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I, uh, so right here in your bio, I've, I've learned uh, several words I didn't know existed. Uh, evidence-based practices and motivational interviewing. What, what are those? Sure. <laughs> so evidence-based practices is really just the research out there that shows what actually works and using those types of interventions or, or risk assessment tools um, um, to actually do the work because there's evidence to support they actually work. Um, and so that's important. As opposed um, to winging it. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, we like to use things that have been proven to work so that we don't do harm. Because some of yeah. these interventions can actually do harm to people if you're not careful. So using evidence-based approach is important. Um, motivational interviewing is an evidence-based approach. It's, um, it's a great intervention to actually kind of um, move someone along and change. So you kind of work with their ambivalence, you use open-ended questions, um, oh, you, yeah. you reflect back ways to talk to them so that actually by the time they've moved through the change, it's, it was their idea. They had buy-in along the way. Well, I, I hope we use some motivational interviewing today. We're going to work on trying to keep these questions open-ended <laughs> that Laurel drafted. Um, so we'll just start with COVID and some of the impacts that you've seen. Um, how, how have you seen crisis calls and uh, as a result, uh, result of the recession and, and sequestering? Yeah, so the, you know, this is, it's funny, this is kind of a trend we see. We see it whenever there's sort of a big event uh, in the community and people assume crisis calls are going to go through the roof right in that moment, and, and they just don't. Um, historically, it's happened like during the eclipse too, when we were just planning for the worst, we thought, you know, everything was just going to fall apart. And really people kind of follow the guidance of public health, of emergency management, and they tend to just stay home and, um, and they don't tend to call crisis, not saying that that's right or wrong, but they, right. they just generally, at least immediately following those types of events, crisis calls go down. Now, as we move into sort of the long-term impacts of what uh, the recession is going to bring, people's loss of jobs, their financial impacts, we will right. start to see our crisis line calls go up. We haven't quite hit that yet, but we have seen um, our crisis calls are, are staying steady. Yeah, we interviewed Patty Adair, and she had said that they had been closely monitoring suicide prevention lines and that they had not seen um, those going up, which I was pretty surprised about. But I do know that 
especially on the economic side, they're well aware that as recessions deepen, you need more dollars, even though they're not coming in for um, services like the ones that you offer. Is that something that you guys are anticipating, budgeting for? Yes, I mean, that's definitely uh, something that we have to be concerned about right now, especially at the state level where they're looking at, you know, two to 4% cuts kind of across the board. I, I, I would imagine that's going to trickle down to us in some fashion. Um, you never know for sure. Um, and so we're, we just, we, we plan accordingly. We're going to look for savings where we can right now to kind of brace for what might or might not come. Um, and we always are looking for grants to help support our work. And there are new funding opportunities that come out in times like these to help fill those gaps. So we'll certainly look to, to apply for those if needed. Yeah, I gotta believe there's gonna be more funding available as there's more discussion about the importance of mental health and in these times. So um, the one of the things I was curious about is uh, with the stabilization center opening, maybe we can just start there. What, since it's such a new thing for most of the people in the county, maybe talk about what the stabilization center is and what your hopes and aspirations are around it. Sure, I'd be happy to. So the Stabilization Center is a collaborative project between Deschutes County Sheriff's Office and Health Services. Um, and it, I always tell people this, it started about five and a half years ago when the sheriff walked into Health Services and said, we have got to do something different because our jail is quickly becoming a mental health facility and that it's not a good place for anyone with a mental health condition. Um, and they're not equipped to deal with those types of situations. Right. So they're not trained for that. Um, and we often will see bad outcomes as a result of that. So, um, so that's when the kind of the ideas began um, and we um, hit the ground running and toured, I've personally toured about 17 different facilities in five different states to try to get an understanding of what models were out there that we could just copy. Quite frankly, I was hoping not to have to do <laughs> as much sure. legwork. Right, um, right. But, but it turns out if you've seen one of these, you've seen one of them. Like they, they all do them a little bit differently. Everybody's model is a little unique and you tailor them to what your community's needs are and where the gaps exist. So we brought all that back. Um, we vetted it through our stakeholders and, and a variety of people. And the model we really chose was to develop a 24 seven crisis stabilization center with 23 hour respite. And at some point in the future, a sober station. Um, so in order to do the sober station, we have to be 24 seven and we need 24 seven stable funding. So we are not there yet. So that's why I sort of call that part phase two um, so right now we're really in phase one, which is working diligently to get open 24 seven. Um, and so we provide service, our model is a little bit unique in that we still serve the general public uh, walk-in. So children, families, adults can walk in during our business hours and receive a crisis assessment, get connected with resources, get their needs met. But we also wanted to support our local law enforcement um, because what we know is that they do not have many alternatives other than taking someone to the emergency department involuntarily or taking them to jail. And those aren't good options um, for most people. Right. Um, so we wanted a place for them to bring them in lieu of those two places. So we have a separate law enforcement entrance where they can bring people voluntarily um, and get in and out of our facility. Our goal is 10 minutes, but we've so far been getting them in and out in three. And so they get in and out quickly as opposed to the three, four hours they wait at the emergency department. So we're kind of hitting it from both angles. Um, and right now we're, we had to slow things down due to COVID. Um, and so we did a soft opening for the month of June. And our hours are just kind of typical business hours, 7 a.m. to 5, Monday through Friday. But starting in July, we'll be expanding our hours till 9 p.m. And then we're working really diligently to get open seven days a week until 9 p.m. And should hopefully, we're aiming for August. Um, for that. And then I've just applied for another grant to get us to 24-7 and I'll find out about that next week. 
Wow, that's exciting. Yeah. So when you're talking about getting them in and out in under uh, three minutes, did you say? Okay, you're talking about the police officer, not the yes. person you're treating. Correct. So the person that we're treating can stay with us. <laughs> yeah. So our model that when I talk about what 23 hour respite. So yeah. that's a, that's a kind of a new emerging model. Um, and once we're 24 seven, we'll be able to provide that full service. Um, but what it means is that someone can stay with us in a recliner, get connected with some food, you know, resources, they can take a shower, they can, we can wash their clothes for them, all while we're bringing their crisis down to a manageable level. We can get them connected with medications if that's what's indicated and appropriate. Right. Um, and so right now they can stay in that recliner with us until five and come July, it'll be till nine. Um, but the goal really is to get to 24 seven so they can stay as long as they need to. Because once you hit that 24 hour mark, that's when you become a licensed residential treatment facility and it's a whole different ball game. Right. So what do you, I mean, for a lot of these people in crisis, <clears throat> they're just need, they're going to need not just a day, but possibly more of the medication that you're talking about. Where do they go? Yeah. So they can come stay with us and, you know, and while we get them connected with all of that, we work really closely with the Bethlehem Inn. So for individuals who are not housed, we, we work with Shepherd's House, Bethlehem Inn. Sadly, unfortunately, sometimes a tent and a sleeping bag is what we have to offer if they're not um, accepted at either of those two places or those places are full. We have access to motels that we'll sometimes set people up in until we can get housing resources set up for them. Um, but, you know, housing is a huge issue here. So it's not like we're going to be able to solve their housing crisis in one day. Like, but we can start the sure. process. Um, how much do you liaise with the private psychiatric community with individuals? Yeah, we do. I mean, you know, um, the population we're primarily dealing with at the crisis center is a, is a pretty acute population. So they're often needing uh, services that our private practice community or practitioners don't necessarily provide. So we have, say, case managers, peer support specialists, just a, a number of sort of groups. We offer lots of groups and so sure. things like that. So generally, we're um, oftentimes they're, they're staying in house and at the county level and getting those services. But for individuals who don't need that level of care, we make referrals constantly to our private um, panel providers as well as our private psychiatric providers. Kind of depends on insurance a lot right. of times. Yeah. Um, but there is no long-term, or I don't want to say long-term, more like a medium-term care facility where someone would come to the crisis stabilization center, maybe not stabilize, mm -hmm. and um, after 23 hours, where would they would not go to a treatment where they could be observed for a week or they could yep we actually do have a facility like that in our community it's called brooks respite it's a phenomenal um, respite facility that's in redmond run by best care okay. and they um they this is exactly why our our service is so critical to the continuum of care because sometimes people don't need a week in a respite facility, but they only need that short 23 sure. hours. And then sometimes people need longer than the 23 hours. And then we can refer them over to Brooks Respite to stay for a week, okay. two weeks, whatever's needed. And then sometimes people need more than respite. They need hospitalization. So that's right. when they would go to our local St. Charles Hospital. We have, they have a acute 15 bed inpatient psych facility. So really you've become an expert gateway for a lot of these mental health professionals and services so somebody regardless of where they are on the spectrum is going to come to you and then you're going to funnel them through to where they need to get to exactly more That's advanced an, care 
yeah, no, that's exactly right. We are like kind of, we, we know all the resources in our community. We know what levels of care people might need. And individuals kind of going through this for the first time, it's incredibly overwhelming. Uh, there's so many nuances and insurance pieces and all the different things that make it complicated. And we're here to help them navigate that um, and get them to where they need to go. And also help law enforcement because they don't, I mean, they're there to protect our community and keep people safe. Like they're not trained mental health professionals and they don't know where to take people oftentimes. Can you, I know you, you spearheaded um, the forensic diversion program at the county. Can you tell us a little bit about that program as well? Yes, I love that program. Um, it started off as a grant, but then it became ongoing funding, which is wonderful, which is how I always hope all of these things are going to go, but <laughs> they don't. Um, so that program, uh, it's really intended to focus on people with a serious and persistent mental illness. So these are people with schizophrenia, severe bipolar disorder, um, those psychotic kind of disorders that are committing low-level crimes in our community by no fault of their own. They're, they're Sometimes we'll have a delusional belief that maybe they own 7-Eleven or they are seeing, seeing things that other people aren't seeing. So they're acting out bizarrely and then coming to the attention of law enforcement. The law enforcement comes out there repeatedly. They try really hard not to have to take them to jail. But sometimes after the fifth, sixth call the and the community's you know, readiness for that person to move on, um, they end up in our, in our jail. And they end up in there for crimes like criminal trespass, disorderly conduct, low-level stuff. And it's a real travesty because those people often are so disorganized that they are unable to then aid and assist in their own defense. And so there's all, that starts a whole process. So they often linger in jail you know, three, four times longer than a, a, a person without a mental illness for the same crime. And so this team is really designed to identify those people that are either at risk coming into contact with law enforcement for those reasons or have already come in to our jail and then they wrap around them intensely so we had their teams primarily made up of peer support specialists who are people who have been in that situation themselves they have had a mental illness themselves in recovery had an addiction or in recovery had law enforcement involvement so they understand that system and they're able to connect with these people in a way that kind of traditional outpatient therapy just isn't able to to do in the same way sure and then we have case manager that, and so they, they have oftentimes daily contact um, with these individuals. And we have seen a reduction in recidivism for the population that has been served by that program um, of 60% since wow. and consistently for the four years that program has been um, in progress. Yeah, good for you guys. That's great. Because I know they can uh, often get in there and exacerbate the problem if they're not getting some kind of attention or care on that stuff. So It's true. I mean, that jail is just ne never going to make a person who's suffering a serious mental illness better. I mean, it's just, it's yeah. not an environment that's conducive to that. Um, and what we've learned from that program is it just does require an intense level of support. Um, and if you do that, it can work really well. So Holly, it's, it would be hard for me not to, in this current environment, talk about defund the police movement and uh, the heightened battle over you know precious dollars for funding um and and i we editorialized this week about some of our thoughts about you know how health services like yours should take a greater role in the budgetary considerations and um i'm just i'm not looking for you to pick sides obviously i know where your heart lies but um how do you feel the county is doing in general in working through these kind of programs or yeah i mean budgetary I questions yeah, I mean, well, in terms of the budget, I mean, um, I think the 
the collaborative project between uh, the sheriff's office and us is a prime example of how this can work, of how you can shuffle funds around to do this kind of progressive alternative and support police while having mental health be sort of primary responders to these types of calls. Sure. So I think it's I think it's really timely that the stabilization center opened in the midst of all of this. I've been around all the different law enforcement agencies talking to them about the project and they all have been like, this is so perfect timing. You know, like this is this is really kind of I think what the movement is talking about needing to do in some ways. Not obviously not the answer to everything by sure. any means, but a piece of the puzzle um, that I think communities need to start looking at. Laurel, do you want to jump in with a question? I feel like yes, I'm I'd monopolizing love again. <laughs> You're not monopolizing. Um, I just wanted to get some clarity as to um, why didn't the Stabilization Center get fully funded to be open 24-7? I know that's the goal, but I mean, you know, like where, what budget didn't get filled out for that to happen? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think we have to look at our community um, as a whole, because really I think what, what, our, um, what our board of commissioners and our, and our sheriff's office partners, that we're looking at this project as a community effort. Um, it, it, it will benefit many people. It'll benefit the hospital. It will benefit um, each of our law enforcement agencies. It will benefit our CCO. It will benefit, I mean, there's the list goes on and on and on of who this project will benefit. And I think um, the, the, the push has been that the community partners who will benefit should help fund this project. Because when you have that stakeholder, stakeholder um, investment, and involvement, then projects tend to be more successful than if you have one entity that sort of pays for everything, gets it up and running, and then you don't have the buy-in from all the people. And so, I mean, that's that that's the model that uh, that's been the approach um, we've tried to take. Um, I think the, always the hard part with a project like this is that we haven't had one in our community, and I can tell everybody all day long how much it's going to benefit them <laughs> um, <laughs> until I have data to show that how much it's benefiting them. I think people are sort of like watching to see like. I want to see how this benefits me first. And so my hope and my expectation, quite frankly, is that if we can get these grants to get us a couple of years of operating at full capacity, I'm going to be able to gather enough data so that no one can refute that this is benefiting them. And I think we can start to have real honest conversations at that point around, is this something we want to continue in our community? Is this worth your investment at this point? Okay. Holly, so, oh, go ahead. Yeah. On that note, I mean, haven't you found, I mean, this has been my experience and I don't know if it's yours, but I, I do think that as there have been more community discussions about mental health and there's been, there's been more of an understanding of what the spectrum is, you see that more people have members of their family, have friends, and they're being properly identified or, um, you know, getting some treatment. It seems like as this discussion goes forward, it's almost um, exponential because you start realizing how many people need mental health services, whether it be counseling at a low level or serious psychiatric health. And has that been your experience? Because it certainly has been mine. Oh yeah, I mean, I think I think identification and awareness is is more prevalent. Um, so I think I don't know that, it, and then population growth, of course, you're always going to see more yes. mental health too. So I think it's a confluence of things that are happening. But yes, we are. I mean, our numbers go up every year. I mean, our our number of mobile crisis team calls from law enforcement go up significantly 
every year. Um, and our number of crisis calls go up every year. So yes, there's definite increase Now, what it's specifically attributed to. Um, I don't know. I mean, there, you know, the, the substances people use now, there's a lot more of them out there. They're more potent. Um, they often can trigger underlying mental health conditions at an earlier age. And so we're seeing, I mean, my team and I are shocked sometimes when we actually um, inter interact with a client that actually doesn't test positive for something also. So I think that that, that, in that intersection of the substance use and mental health is just um, certainly on the rise. Well, and I think too, you're getting better classification on calls by police where they go Absolutely. in and they can identify better now than they used to where they would come and be just like, you know, it's meth or whatever the underlying assumption was. That's absolutely the case. And I think Deschutes County is really progressive in that area um, because we have had a, what we call a CIT program. So crisis intervention team training. It's a, it's an evidence-based um, uh, international <laughs> model for how to do this work with this population. So it's a 40 hour training we offer uh, here, uh, usually twice a year. Um, mo most of our law enforcement officers have gone through CIT training, have a real good understanding of like at least recognizing that this may not be the traditional call and that there could be something else going on. And so let me just pick up the phone and call the mobile team and let's figure this out together. Sure. Can you tell us more about those mobile teams? Because I think that's another one of those things that really comes under the heading of defund the police. Like let's send social workers um, out to these crisis situations. Ben has kind of a complicated infrastructure, right? There's a number of different mobile teams. No, so Bend, Bend has, we had a grant, we, we were awarded a five-year SAMHSA grant uh, last year, which allowed us to embed a clinician into the Bend Police Department's mental health unit. And that's a really progressive approach because while mobile teams are fantastic and they're still needed, having them embedded in a police department not only affects the culture from, from both the clinician and the law enforcement officer, they start to build that relationship, but they're also saving a ton of time because they're actually going out on calls together. So you don't have to get out to the scene, make a determination if this is mental health or not, and then call and then wait 20 minutes for a mobile team member to get out there. It's happening in real time. So that's a really cool program. Um, it's a five-year grant, so we're in year one. Um, I'm really excited to see what the data shows on that. But in addition to that, we in Deschutes County have had a mobile team um, for about 14 years. So we've been ahead of the curve for a long time, mobile teams only became required in the state of Oregon, I think a year and a half, two years ago. So we've, we've been doing it long before it was required and, and really that is a key uh, way to prevent individuals with mental health conditions ending up in the criminal justice system. Um, what are interventions go a little differently. So are they 24 hours and can you tell us a little bit about like what, what they do? Yeah, they are. They work 24-7, 365 days a year. So I, every holiday, Christmas, all those, all the good things, they're out there working and um, responding to calls and they're a very busy team. So they're a team of six. They work, um, they work in teams of three each and they're do a rotate, a really crazy rotation of schedules. So they work like, you know, 72 hours on and then have several days off. And they um, carry their phone with them at all times and law enforcement's our primary referral source. So law enforcement will call them out to the scene for suspected mental health cases. They come out there, they do a risk assessment, they meet with the person. Law enforcement generally kind of just steps back, lets us do our thing. They're there if case things go south, which is really nice. We've, we've been very fortunate not to have any major incidents. And I think because we have that great partnership with law enforcement and support, 
Um, and then oftentimes we can, you know, either take the, get make sure they go to the hospital or divert them from the hospital and make a safety plan in their home with a family member or whatever the case may be. Holly, I might be veering out of your realm of expertise, but I wondered if you had any thoughts about um, the role that SRO officers play in schools. It's a place where I think, you know, you have a lot of initial mental health issues start to appear. Um, and, you know, we were, Laurel and I were having this discussion before you got on about how uh, different it is for kids today than say when certainly myself and, and even Laurel had, you know, guidance from somebody that wasn't law office, a law officer, maybe an assistant principal or guidance within the school that relayed to the family. I just wonder, do you have much interaction with those SRO officers in the school and how much do you interact within the school system? Um, so yeah, so our second biggest referral source probably is, is the school district. So we often get called out to do crisis assessments at the school district a lot of times by the SRO because the SROs have gone through that CIT training I talked about. Right. They have an awareness of when something's not right and they're really um, being proactive to get us involved and engaged and help support these families. And we have a great relationship with the school districts. Um, we work really closely with their school counselors. Um, and we, we really work very collaboratively um, because schools really, are, yeah, they, they're the place where you're gonna be able to see this type of behavior pretty early on. And right. if, if they're really active in that um, process, then we can help these kids much sooner. Couldn't um, school administrators get that same CIT training? I mean, I'm just wondering if it's necessary that, because often those kids are not identified as mentally ill or have having a crisis and they're shot over where you're gonna get your forensic diversion program engaged rather than yeah. the counselor. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I don't know what trainings the school offers for their administration. I'm sure that they do get some type of mental health uh, training. I, I, that's so out of my realm. I don't, I don't know what's yeah. offered for them. But um, I know that they do get uh, what's called QPR training, question, persu persuade, respond. And that's a suicide intervention um, training that really helps kind of the lay person know how to talk to somebody about suicide, identify with it, then get right. them to the appropriate resources. Yeah, it's come up because it's, you know, certainly in Portland, and it was something that, that I at least mentally latched on to. It's one of the things that they talked about in terms of defunding mm -hmm. was shifting resources from SRO to more mental health services, because especially for children, I would think that in the majority of cases, that was something where you'd really want counseling. And I, I realize the counselors there are completely overburdened and have so many people that they're dealing with. But mm -hmm. I'm wondering, can you speak to that? I know they're your comrades in arms, but. Um. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't know that I feel comfortable kind of weighing in one side or the other, but I, I do think I will always advocate for more resources for behavioral health. <laughs> I mean, that is, that's to me a no brainer that we uh, across the board need to shift resources, whether it's from police or from some other entity or somewhere, sure. we just need to make it a priority um, for our state um, and for our nation. And because at, I think at the root of a lot of this, um, there is a mental health component um, that could be addressed um, and, and we are just vastly underfunded in general. Um, yeah, with your lens on the community, 
Would you say that, I mean, as you look across services that are offered, what age group would you say it, it, all money being no object should, should get some additional funding or uh, needs a focus? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I just have my personal opinions about it. I'm sure there would be others that would disagree with this, but I mean, I, I think early intervention for people who are experiencing um, a first psychotic break I mean, we're talking about a, the development of a, um, a chronic mental illness that's going to span their lifetime. And we know that people with those conditions often die much sooner than somebody without that condition um, for various reasons. So I think, um, you know, we, we are very fortunate here in Deschutes to have what's called an ESA program. Um, and it's, it, yeah, it's, it's an early psychosis intervention program and, and they're really they're another evidence-based model. Um, and they, I mean, that's, that's where I think if you can intervene earlier and, and in the most appropriate way, you can change the trajectory of a young person's life um, pretty dramatically. So that's one area I just think needs even more money. Um, and then I, you know, we know that our, our, um, our population of kind of middle-aged males, um, are, they're dying of alarming rates of suicide. Um, and I, I think there's, there's more that can be done there. Um, and we need to get, I think, more creative in how we reach that population. The stigma around mental health still prevents males of that age group to actually reach out and seek help. Um, and so there's still work to be done. Um, but, you know, mental illness, it, it affects people of all ages, um, all races, you know, all economic sure. backgrounds. So it, it's kind of hard to pinpoint one particular. <laughs> well, we're playing leprechaun here. So, you know, <laughs> money's no object. I, I, I do I do think it's helpful, though, to, to kind of when thinking about, especially for us as journalists, like, you know, where could we put more of our energies in terms of reporting and what populations are most at risk in our own community, where are ser services abundant, uh, well, abundant, but so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think just that, 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 um, you know, early psychosis part that I was just talking about. I mean, I think when you've um, been with a family who's experiencing that for the first time, um, having their child, having their first psychotic break and seeing the dramatic change that that's going to take on their life, it's, it's pretty powerful and, um, and, and heartbreaking, quite frankly. Yeah. What, um, what criminal justice reforms are you most passionate about? as you go yeah I mean I, I just want um, I, I, I just want the criminalization of mental illness to stop <laughs> I mean you know that is a big passion of mine and I know nobody's intending for it to happen it's sort of one of these natural consequences that happened as a result of some things that happened back in the 60s um, you know the deinstitutionalization of, of mental illness and people coming out of state institutions which was a great thing but the way it happened and the impacts of that have had long-lasting um, impacts on our communities. There was no funding that followed it. Um, and so mm -hmm. droves of really, really acute people suffering from serious mental illness ended up back up in communities with no support, with no dollars attached. Um, and communities had to just figure it out. And guess who had, guess who got left holding the bag is our law enforcement. Um, sure. They're the ones who have to get called out. And then suddenly they're being asked to be experts in mental health and deal with all this perfectly without any training really to, to go along with it early on. And then people ended up in jail. Um, and then they have criminal records, then they can't get housing, and then they can't get a job. And it's just this domino effect that is, um, that, sorry, I get on my soapbox about it a little no, bit. No, that's, that's, <laughs> this is the soapbox, so we appreciate it. <laughs> so yeah, that's a, that's a piece that I, I'm, as a country, um, we need to 
do better because it's 2020 and we still have people sitting in all of our jails across America that are in there for no other reason than the fact that they have schizophrenia. And right. that's, that's a terrible thing. You wouldn't put somebody in there because they have cancer. Why would you put them in there because they have schizophrenia? Well, without your forensic diversion program, I think they just, again, they just, it, it exacerbates the situation and, you know, there needs to be a lot more education. So there's a lot more compassion and, uh, yeah. And ultimately so, it does come back to money. I mean, it just, you know, it needs, it, it requires um, money to do this stuff, <laughs> to do it well. Um, it requires staff who work around the clock to do it. Um, and that's just not you know, cheap. Yeah. Cheaper than putting them in jail though. <laughs> Well, and, and it radiates out. You get to yeah. provide those services for a greater body of people, hopefully. And so, yeah, that's why I'm super excited to have you on and have the stabilization program up and running. It's great. So Thank you. We're very excited. So, Holly, we're reaching the end of our time. Is there yeah. anything that we didn't talk to that you feel like you'd like to speak to before we have to go? No, I think we covered most of it. I'm just really excited that we're open and, you know, we are going to do everything we can to get to be 24 seven. So fingers crossed on the latest grant we applied for. Um, and just, you know, I really appreciate you guys sharing the message of mental health in, in your, in your paper regularly and getting the word out there, because I, I think the most important message people can hear is that there is help. Um, and it, and it does work and you just, it, you know, so just reach out because we're here. Yeah, well, thanks to effective people like you, you're, you're getting the dollars and um, that's great. You're Thank to be you. commended for it, for sure. Well, uh, that concludes the podcast. Thanks for joining us, everybody. This is the Ben Don't Break uh, with Laurel and Aaron and this week, Holly Harris. Uh, we appreciate you listening.